You're listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres by Blue Sumutra on AO3. It's after 10 p.m. when Scully finally lets herself into her scantily lit apartment, juggling briefcase, laptop bag, and a four-inch stack of autopsy reports bundled together with a thick, elastic band. She edges through the door, desperately trying to keep the noise down, failing miserably when she bangs into a lamp and the door handle slips from her grasp. Her mother turns to look when the heavy wood door slams closed with a picture-rattling bang. Both Scully and her mother freeze as they wait to hear if the baby has woken, but by some small miracle, William stays asleep. The television is on low, George Clooney performing an improbably rapid detox on a drug-addicted baby, while looking way better and way more rested than any of the residents she ever worked with. The apartment smells of homemade soup and downy, two things that in the past had been comforting, but which are now just unwelcome reminders of the many and varied ways in which she's failing to balance motherhood and her career. Before William was born, no one was around to see if the laundry piled up, or she survived on cereal and yogurt for weeks on end. Now, with her mother coming over to watch the baby two days a week, her domestic failings are laid bare. For all her accomplishments, she's never felt as inadequate as she does in moments like these. Sorry I'm so late, Mom, she says wearily, abandoning her bags on the kitchen table and shrugging out of her coat as she makes her way into the living room. She doesn't get into excuses about the four autopsies she performed on top of a full day of teaching or the two-hour meeting of the new working group she's been co-opted into, as if her plate isn't already full enough. Her mother has been watching William since she left for work at 7 a.m., and it's been an epic day for her, too. As fit as she is, Margaret Scully is still 67 years old, and a 15-hour tour of duty was more than she had signed up for, however cute the baby. Don't worry about it, sweetheart, her mother assures her although she looks suspiciously bleary-eyed and like she might have been dozing on the sofa before Scully came in. Was he good for you? Scully asks as she kicks off her heels and enjoys the feel of cool wood under her aching feet. Yes, we had a wonderful day. I took him to St. John's for the Chris Dingle service. He loved the lights, and the ladies were very taken with him. He's such a handsome boy, Margaret enthuses. Although not her first grandchild, William is the first one close enough to show off to her friends, and she seizes every opportunity. The baby's been to more bake sales, coffee mornings, and stitch and bitch sessions than any seven-month-old has the right to. Scully isn't quite sure what message it sends to a developing baby to tote him along to Monday afternoon bridge every week, but the Catholic ladies of Baltimore are a sweet bunch, when they aren't card-sharking and she's grateful for the two days a week her mother watches over William. How was your day, honey? You look exhausted, Margaret asks after finishing a lengthy rundown on William's day, which includes a graphically detailed report on everything he'd consumed 
and excreted that has Scully making a mental note to exclude blueberries from his diet in the future. Exhausted doesn't even come close to describing how Scully feels. She's been back at work since September, supposedly working four days a week in a stress-free teaching role at Quantico. The reality, however, is proving quite different. I'm okay, she says through a forced smile. Her mother eyes her doubtfully. When's Fox due back? She asks evenly, her voice a little too devoid of tone to be natural and Scully's hackles rise. I don't know. He's consulting on a serial rapist case in L.A., she replies sharply. She usually spares her mother the grisly details, but Jesus, she's too tired to navigate another tense discussion about her relationship with Mulder, his residency status, or his approach to his responsibilities. It's not as if he's on vacation. He's working, damn it. Her mother tucks her chin, bites her tongue, and eases off the sofa to start putting her shoes and coat on. You both just work so hard, Dana. I'm worried about you. Scully follows her to the door, taking a deep breath that she lets out quietly. Her mother's heart is in the right place. She just has to keep reminding herself of that. I know, Mom. We're fine, though. Her mother's eyes travel over her face, tallying the markers of her fatigue, before relenting as she appears to realize Scully is in no condition to go another round on taming Mulder. But then she opens her mouth, and the words that come out shatter the frivolous hope. Have you had any thoughts about Christmas? Scully hasn't had a thought beyond surviving the next 24 hours in almost eight months. This time she sighs without restraint. Mom. It would just be nice to have the family together. Bill and Tara are coming. They'd love to meet William. And of course, Fox is welcome too. The hasty addition stings. Mulder's hurt. Well, actually, now that they're no longer work partners, their relationship lacks a label. But whatever he is, he's also William's father. They all but live together. He shouldn't need a named invitation to Christmas lunch. I don't know, Mom. I'll think about it, Scully hedges, and by a small miracle, her mother lets it drop. They exchange hugs, and finally, she eases her mother out the door and locks it behind her. Scully looks past the abandoned bags on the table to the pile of baby clothes that had been overflowing from the hamper when she left for work, but which now sit in a freshly laundered stack. She looks at the pot of soup on the stovetop, and though her stomach feels like it might be on the verge of digesting itself for lack of an alternative, she extinguishes the lights and makes her way through to the nursery. There are simply not enough hours in the day to do everything she's supposed to be doing, and right now the lure of sleep overrides all other necessities. William lies on his stomach in his crib, snoring softly, with his knees tucked underneath him. The round swell of his butt sticks up in the air. She leans over the slatted side to kiss the feather-soft fuzz on the back of his head, inhaling the comforting melange of formula and no more tears and pee and William that she could pick out from a lineup of a thousand babies. Her heart aches with love for the child. This right here is her family, and that's all she wants. That, and the hours in the day to be able to enjoy it without feeling like she's constantly failing. Like millions of women before her, she wants to have it all, 
the career, the child, the successful relationship, and yet it's never felt so unobtainable. With the final stroke of his silky hair, Scully slips from the room. She undresses, brushes her teeth, and makes a rudimentary effort to remove her makeup before crawling into a bed that's still unmade from the previous night. Within minutes, she is asleep. Mulder creeps into the apartment shortly after 3 a.m., strips to his shorts, and eases into the bed behind Scully. She's warm and soft and doesn't stir as he curls around her like a comma. Love you, he whispers into her neck, before laying his head on her pillow, nose buried in the tangle of hair strewn behind her. God, it's good to be back. He's been gone for eleven days and hated every one of them. He'd missed ten bath times. Ten bedtimes. Ten days of toothless smiles and giggles and dirty diapers. Ten nights had passed without the sweet bliss of holding this woman in his arms. By the eleventh day, there was nothing else he could contribute to the case, and he'd had a home alone moment in LAX, where he'd traded the family jewels in return for the last seat on an oversold flight back to Dulles. You're home, Scully sighs an indistinct jumble of vowels that he's only able to decipher after nine years of partnership. Yeah, he is. Not just back, but home. Shh, sleep. Missed you, she replies, sleepy still, but intelligible this time. He hums in agreement, nosing through her hair to find the skin on the back of her neck that is as soft as William's buttery cheeks. I had to sell my testicles to get an earlier flight. Hmm, just as long as that's all you sold. He rocks his hip into her, enjoying the soft curve of her ass, even though he's so tired it would take a Viagra and an electric current to rouse his slumbering dick. He teases his fingertips under the hem of her pajama top, and she catches his hand and clumsily pulls it up to her chest. Fingers entwine as she holds his hand against her heart. I want to stay here for Christmas, she slurs, a non-sequitur. His sleep-deprived brain struggles to make the connections. Versus. She's quiet for long enough that he begins to suspect she's fallen back to sleep. And he's well on the way to following her when she speaks again. Going to my mom's. Oh. You're my family now, you and William. She breathes as sleep reasserts its grip on her once more. He thinks of the lease renewal contract for his rarely used apartment that has been sitting in his glove box for over a month, unsigned. He thinks of his grandmother Kuiper's engagement ring that he'd checked out of the safe deposit box shortly after William was born, that he's been hiding in a balled-up pair of socks ever since. He thinks about how incredible the last seven months have been as they navigate this new journey together. And apparently, he thinks about it all for just a little too long, because by the time he thinks to actually answer, Scully's throat rumbles with a tiny snore. What do you mean you're going to take care of Christmas? Mulder licks some applesauce from the handle of the spoon he's using to feed William his breakfast and pulls a silly face at the baby. Exactly what I said, Scully. Scully frowns as she pours coffee from the carafe into her travel mug. But, like, what does that involve? He knows she's truly flummoxed when sesquipedalian speech fails her, 
and she breaks out the Valley Girl fillers. I don't, like, know how to put it in simpler terms. Blue eyes narrow at his teasing tone. So William's gifts? Mulder nods, airplaning a spoon into William's waiting mouth, complete with sound effects. Sure, I'll take care of the FAO Schwartz run. All the wrapping, decorations, food. I'll even make sure I get a bottle of sherry in for Santa's snack. Scully swipes the mess of applesauce from William's face with a cloth and then lifts the chattering baby from his high chair and carries him through to the living room to start manhandling him into a snowsuit. Her confusion has given way to mild amusement, and she smirks over the top of the wriggling baby's head. I'm pretty sure Santa's tastes have evolved ever since the 1960s, Mulder. Yeah? What does he drink these days? He asks, dumping the breakfast dishes in the sink and catching sight of the clock above. If they don't get moving soon, he's going to miss his 8 a.m. meeting with Skinner. Cognac, maybe? Vodka? Chamomile tea? They tag team getting their own coats on, and Mulder straps William into his car seat, while Scully takes the dishes out of the sink and loads them into the dishwasher. You really want to do this? She asks when they eventually make it downstairs to their respective cars. William's seat hangs heavily between them, the baby jabbering nonsensical words as he tries to grab his toes with mittened hands. He looks down at her, takes in the dark rings under her eyes and the sharp line of her cheekbones. In the three months since she had returned to work, she's lost every pound of her baby weight and another ten besides. And while he loves her whatever she looks like, he knows the weight loss is because, in her effort to make sure everyone else is taken care of, she stopped taking care of herself. This is their first Christmas as a family, and he wants to do it right. I really want to do this, he confirms, ducking down to pluck her lips with his own. For you. He lingers at her mouth, stealing a second kiss, and then a third, until she smiles against his lips. I don't know whether to be excited or afraid. He pulls open the rear door to Scully's car and buckles William's seat in, ticking the boy's tummy, tickling the boy's tummy and kissing the tip of his nose, before closing the door firmly. He repeats the same maneuvers on Scully, and the sparkle in her eyes tells him she's warming to his idea. A little of both, I think. Aided by Scully's still insane work schedule, Mulder's Yuletide preparations were progressing at a clip. He'd hit up the toy store on Tuesday during an extended lunch hour, parting ways with an obscene amount of money for plastic crap which they'll probably end up removing the batteries from before Christmas Day is out. On Wednesday, he picked William up from Maggie's while Scully taught a late class and took him to a craft jeweler on P Street belonging to the sister of a sister of the bassist in Langley's band. The cheerful Romanian proprietor had taken impressions of William's tiny fingers and for a small extra fee, promised to have a pendant ready for collection on Christmas Eve bearing the miniature print. On Friday, he cut out of work early heading to a tree nursery where he procured a particularly lush and handsome Norway spruce. In fact, it was so lush and handsome that by the time he'd manhandled the eight-foot behemoth off the roof of his car, up the two flights of stairs to Scully's apartment, and into the living room, which had definitely fucking shrunk, he was swearing like a pig. Ninety minutes and a minor surgical procedure with Scully's bread knife later, the seven-foot tree was finally wedged into the corner of the room 
blocking the view of the television from the sofa, and Mulder's forearms and face resembled a porcupine. On the plus side, the bastarding tree had almost no needles left, so with a squint, the television was still almost watchable. He tried to conceal the bald patches with artfully draped tinsel and an abundance of baubles, but when Scully returned home with William, she took one look at the Charlie Brown tree and Mulder's perforated face and had to bite her lip to stop from laughing. He'd had visions of making love to her under the twinkling tree lights, by the warmth of a roaring fire, but the threadbare twig dominating half the living room was more Nightmare Before Christmas than Take Me Slowly Before Christmas. Still, Scully's insistence that he let her apply Neosporin to his puncture wounds after William had gone down for the night had led to a satisfying, if somewhat hasty, coupling on the bathroom counter, so it wasn't all bad. The weekend, like almost every weekend for the past ten years, disappeared into a blur of catching up on work missed during the week, only now they squeezed in a raft of humdrum domestic chores as well. On Saturday, Scully took William to a swimming class while he caught up on paperwork he'd skipped during the week while he ran around town playing elf. And on Sunday, they swapped roles, so Scully could prepare for a session she was leading on Monday morning with the CDC. Truth be told, he had never pictured himself as the guy pushing a cart around the market, babbling away like an imbecile to his kid about whether Mommy wanted them to buy half and half or the 1%. And yet, it had been surprisingly easy to slot into the role. And then before he knew it, it was Christmas Eve. As a trade-off for avoiding the full Scully family Christmas dinner, Scully had conceded to stopping by her mother's after they finished work for an informal meet-and-greet with the extended Scully clan. The plan was for her to swing by the Hoover building on her way up from Quantico to collect Mulder just before lunch. Then they'd drive to Baltimore together, drink eggnog, eat some cold cuts, avoid Bill, and be on the road back to D.C. by 4 p.m. latest. By 1 p.m., she still hadn't left Quantico, and her cell is diverting straight to voicemail. This, ordinarily, wouldn't be a problem, but Mulder has vague recollections that the Quantico daycare facility is supposed to be closing early. From the back of the office, between the sink and the desk housing Scully's weighty microscope, the small black-and-white TV squawks out a replay of the previous night's Cowboys versus Cardinals game. The Cowboys are up 14-10 at the beginning of the third quarter, but football isn't really his sport, and he's only been half-listening while he potters happily at his desk, waiting to hear back from his beloved. Scully eventually returns his call just after 1.30 p.m., and Mulder tucks his cell between his shoulder and ear while he jiggles a reluctant slide into position in the old Kodak carousel. Ho, ho, ho. It's me, his beloved says, sounding decidedly tense. Hey, me, what's up? he asks as the slide finally slips into the slot. You on the road yet? Where are you? she asks. Her voice is tinny and distant, like the handset is ten feet from her mouth. He can hear the metallic clattering noises in the background. I'm just in the office, tying up a few loose ends. Did you know on Christmas Eve the number of UFO sightings reported increases significantly? Over 45% last year. No. I did not know that. Listen, I'm running behind. The Iron Maiden's got me doing another damn autopsy. I'm almost done, but it's going to be after 3 p.m. before I get to you. 
There's another metallic clang, and Mulder realizes it's the sound of unused instruments being overarmed into the stainless steel sink from across the room. Uh, sure, what about William? Wasn't his daycare supposed to be on a half day today? He asks, holding a slide up to the light and squinting to determine which way round it goes. I have William with me. In the morgue? He's seven months old, Mulder. I don't exactly think it's going to scar his development. Besides, death is a natural part of the life cycle. When he doesn't say anything else, she continues. I'll let my mother know we're running late. I think the fact we aren't there has already clued her in, Scully, he observes, not relishing the prospect of adding Tardy to his list of infractions. Knocking Scully up out of wedlock was one thing, but being late to a gathering with a family that prided itself on its military-level punctuality? That was something else entirely. Scully coos appeasingly to William in a tone completely at odds with the stomach-lurching, slopping, wet squelch of flesh being manhandled. I'll call you when I'm five minutes out, she says, normal-toned again. She primes the striker saw with a few short bursts, and he's grateful to hang up the phone. Three hours later, they're standing on her mother's doorstep, bearing two bottles of wine, a poinsettia, and a very grumpy baby. Mulder's not surprised. If someone had strong-armed him into a red-and-white striped sleeper with a reindeer on the front of it, he'd be pissed as well. Scully buries her nose in her shoulder. All I can smell is corpse and formaldehyde. Can you smell it? She asks, exhaling ferociously through her nose. No, he lies, pushing her forward with a hand on the small of her back so she's firmly front and center when the door opens. A formally dressed woman in a long-sleeved black dress and a scalloped white apron welcomes them with a friendly smile, greeting Scully and William by name. Mulder recognizes her as the woman who has staffed Maggie's previous dinner parties, but her name escapes him. When she swings the door wide to allow them in, he spots a second penguin passing from the kitchen into the dining room with a tray of champagne flutes, and he tries to arrest the alarm before it overtakes his face. This was supposed to be an informal family get-together, so why the hell are the hired help out in force? I thought it was just a light lunch, he asks Scully through gritted teeth as he shrugs out of his coat and hands it to the maid. Me too, she agrees, smiling stiffly and shedding her own coat to reveal a fluffy wine-colored sweater. Even the sight of her exquisite clavicles and the lush swell of her breasts, displayed to full advantage by the deep v-neck of her sweater, is not enough to stop Mulder's spirits from plummeting. He tugs uncomfortably at his tie and crouches down to unbuckle William from his seat, a look of shared misery passing between father and son. Maggie appears, beaming, flushed, and one and a half sheets to the wind, and gives them both a brisk kiss before focusing her attention on William. He's a little out of sorts, Scully apologizes, rifling through the Buick-sized diaper bag they travel nowhere without to find a teething ring. He didn't nap properly. Mulder notices she leaves out the part about how hard it is to knock off with a striker saw whirring in the background. Oh, I'm sure he'll cheer up now you're here, Maggie enthuses, lavishing kisses and tickles, and reluctantly, William cracks a half-smile. See, there we go. Who's Grandma's clever boy? Yes, you are. Scully widens her eyes at him as they trail behind Maggie into the dining room and he knows they're both on the same page. They need to approach this like a shoot and scoot, 
stick together and get in and out as quickly as possible. She snags two glasses of champagne from a passing tray and downs half of one in a single sip. Deducing that her sudden thirst makes him the designated driver, Mulder takes a more measured sip as his spare hand finds its natural resting place at the small of her back. In the dining room, an extended array of red-haired relatives and assorted waifs and strays graze from a buffet capable of sustaining the 5,000 for a full 12 days of Christmas. Those with plates piled high drift into the garden room beyond, or the living room where Bill is holding court in front of a gaggle of adoring ants who evidently can't recognize horseshit when they hear it. He's wearing a hideous, fair isle sweater that had to have been a gift, because no one with eyes would choose it for themselves, and his expression sours as he sees them approaching. Look who's here, Maggie calls. She's promptly swarmed by old ladies desperate for a piece of William, and Mulder's chest puffs with pride. The fruit of his loins is a chick magnet. The fact that the chicks are all post-retirement age is purely incidental. Cute baby, Bill concedes as they watch William granny surf across the room to a chorus of oohs and ahs. The baby's mood seems to have lifted now that he's receiving the attention he deserves. Merry Christmas, Bill, Scully offers, stretching up to kiss his cheek and hug him. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Mulder echoes vacuously as Scully settles back onto her feet. He slides his hand from her back to rest on her hip, pulling her against him none too subtly. He's fully prepared to feel the heel of her shoe grind against his foot in retribution for his possessive behavior, but instead, she snakes her hand right under his jacket and around his waist. Mulder stifles a grin but fails absolutely in his effort to prevent his lips from curving into a smug smile. There is almost no delineation between the hue of Bill's face and the angry red of his garish sweater. Dana, Fox, Tara says, coming to join them. Evidently immune to her husband's dubious fashion sense, she wears a sleeveless black dress which complements her permatan and blonde hair nicely. Dana, you look amazing, she says, and although her effusive West Coast gushiness is a little unnerving, she seems genuinely pleased to see them and it's obvious the compliment is sincere. Scully flushes, never one to accept praise easily unless it's about her intellect or her scientific prowess. Um, thanks. You too, she replies awkwardly. I'm glad we could make it. I was beginning to think you wouldn't, Bill mutters, downing the remainder of his champagne aggressively. Tara squeezes his arm. Oh, hush. You're a federal employee too, Bill. How many events have you been late to, or missed, thanks to Uncle Sam? Bill worries a molar with his tongue and sniffs grudgingly. Mom said you're back to teaching now. Half the week, yes. The other half of the week she kicks my ass, Mulder chips in, squeezing Scully's waist. Tara laughs, Bill looks hemorrhoidal, and they are saved from further conversation by the hurricane-like arrival of Matthew. The poor kid has a matching Fair Isle sweater, which clashes with his mop of carroty hair, and he barrels into Bill's legs like a leprechaun on speed. Daddy, Daddy, the train broke. Come fix it. Matthew, say hello to Auntie Dana and Fox, Tara admonishes. The little boy looks up impatiently at them, and Scully offers her first real smile since they arrived, crouching down to the boy's height. Hey there, Matthew, you've grown. The last time she saw him would have been the previous spring when they were in L.A. for the premiere of the Lazarus Bowl. 
The movie sucked, but the fringe benefits had been pretty good. And that night still holds the record for most successive orgasms he'd brought Scully to in one session. In fact, if he recalls correctly, she'd had to write herself a script for Macrobid the next day. Great sweater, dude, Mulder says to the kid, and Bill shoots him a dirty look as he has hustled away to carry out essential repairs to the model railway in the den. Mulder's tolerance holds out for approximately 90 minutes of inane chatter with libidinous old ladies who seem to find every excuse to squeeze his bicep and pat his chest. When William's face turns beetroot and his expression glazes over, Mulder eagerly volunteers for diaper duty, whisking the foul-smelling child off to the cloakroom, where he changes the diaper, opens the window, and lingers for 20 minutes of sanity-restoring peace. When he emerges with rejuvenated patients and a fresh-smelling William, Maggie intercepts him almost immediately, at least another half-sheet to the wind since he last saw her, and nabs William. He reluctantly relinquishes his son and goes in search of Scully, hoping against hope that their tour of duty is almost over. He finds her eventually in the dining room, nibbling on crudités while talking to Tara and a portly brunette he doesn't recognize. The fireplace behind her is ablaze, and the flickering glow picks out the gold in her copper hair. He hangs back a minute, lurking behind the branches of a tree still in possession of its needles, to observe her. She looks flushed and vaguely tipsy, although when she talks, her voice is completely steady. He can see the candlelight dancing in her eyes, and he is seized, not for the first time, by a wave of love and affection so powerful that he actually reaches for the doorframe to steady himself. I think Neil changed about three diapers the whole time Trent was in them, the brunette observes, and the three women laugh. Your mom says Fox is really good with the baby, Tara comments. He can see the surprise is feeling echoed in Scully's expression. Maggie's too well-mannered to be rude to his face, but he's not oblivious to the pained looks and loaded comments Scully's had to endure during their unconventional and decidedly un-Catholic approach to parenthood. He's been amazing, she says softly. We're so lucky to have him, she adds, and the wood of the doorframe is surely in danger of turning to coal under his crushing grip. He feels like the Grinch when his heart started to grow. No sound of wedding bells? Tara presses. He strains to hear her response, to distill the true emotion behind her words. Oh, um, I don't think that's something we need. There's a hint of melancholy, or does he just imagine it? She tucks her hair behind her ear, licks her upper lip. If she just... And there she goes, rubbing the knuckle of her pointer finger over the tip of her nose. She's lying. Marriage is not something they've discussed. Cohabitation, like parenthood, like their relationship itself, is something they've stumbled into almost by accident. In ever-increasing circles, they've moved from salacious touches to kisses to fucking to making love, all of it without discussion. Once she fell pregnant and immaculate conception against all odds, they accepted it on face value, unexpected but definitely not unwanted. There was never a conversation about how things would be when the baby arrived. He just hung around and she let him. But Scully deserves more than a life built on happenstance. The fates might have brought them together, but it's their commitment to one another that will keep them together. Today, tomorrow, and always, he chooses her. And it's about time he makes sure she knows it. Oh my god, 
Scully gasps, rolling off of him and flopping onto her back in the center of the bed. The pillows are long gone, the box sheet coming away at the corners. That was incredible. Mulder rolls with her, pressing wet, sloppy kisses into the dampened crook of her neck and across the flushed expanse of her heaving chest. He sucks one rigid nipple into his mouth and trails the tips of his fingers between her legs to where she is swollen and dripping with the combined release of both their passion. Scully tosses her forearm over her eyes, moaning, I can't come anymore. He lets her nipple fall from his mouth, running the pointed tip of his tongue over it before continuing his journey south. Yeah, you can. He mutters into her belly button before tracing his lips over the fading stretch marks from where she carried their child. He slides his ring and middle fingers into her engorged pussy, and her walls clamp down on him, a deep, guttural groan rumbling from her chest. I can't, I can't, she breathes, shaking her head against the sheets, even as her thighs spring open and her fingernails dig into the back of his head to urge him on. Her hair is a snarled mess, her stomach rippling as fresh arousal washes through her, and the intoxicating scent of her sex under the bleachy tang of his own semen makes him wish his spent cock was not adhered to his inner thigh. He cannot conceive of a day where he will ever tire of making love to this woman. You can, he says again, lowering his mouth to her clit and searching with crooked fingers for the trigger point inside her that sends her wild. As worked up as she is, it takes no effort at all to locate her inflamed G-spot, and when he presses into it, she shudders and cries out, bucking against him. Fuck, Mulder. Jesus, fuck. Oh my god, oh my god. She breaks apart under his touch as he wrings her fourth orgasm from her, like water from a wet chamois. A gush, then a protracted trickle, her climax rolling on and on and on until he squeezed every last drop from her. It's not quite the tally of Los Angeles, but it's the closest they've come since William was born. And as he kisses his way back up her lifeless body and along her slack jaw, he knows it's enough. He peppers kisses against her neck and strokes her arm and torso while she slowly comes back together. And in less than a minute, she's out for the count. Scully? He calls quietly, just to make sure, and is rewarded with a small snore. Bingo. Scully has always been a champion-grade snoozer. She attributes this to med school, where apparently the really talented interns and residents like herself perfected the art of literally sleeping while standing in order to survive. He's counting on this skill and her postcoital exhaustion to keep her asleep long enough for him to accomplish the plan he's been concocting ever since her inadvertent revelation at her mother's. Slipping from the wreckage of the bed, he pulls the sheet off the floor and covers Scully, then grabs a pair of sweats and a t-shirt and takes them out to the kitchen to get dressed. He rifles through the pantry to exact three or four of the biggest Tupperware containers, grabs his car keys, and exits the apartment as quietly as he can. He is a man with a plan, and he's got about four hours to execute it. The roads to Alexandria at 2 a.m. on Christmas morning are unsurprisingly free from traffic. He motors along George Washington Memorial Parkway, unimpeded and just south of Potomac Yards, he takes the exit that leads to his neighborhood. The parking gods are not shining on him as there is not a single space to be found on Hagel Place, but given the hour, he takes his chances and double parks. 
He's lived on this street for 13 years. It was always supposed to be a stopgap, though on the way to what, he'd never quite been sure. The apartment had seen two girlfriends, three shootings, and countless heated arguments. It was the place where he grew up, the place where, over the course of seven years, hundreds of case files and dozens of takeout pizzas, he had fallen in love with Scully. His son had been conceived in that apartment. Some of his best memories from the past 13 years originated from within those dingy ochre walls, and he cherishes every one of them. But it's time to make new memories. He leans over and digs through the glove box, shoving subway napkins and ancient sachets of McDonald's ketchup aside to reach the renewal lease for his apartment. He takes the pen from his coat pocket and scrawls, no thanks, on the front page, and then refolds the thick document and tucks it in his inside pocket. Inside the scuffed lobby, he posts the lease document in his landlord's mailbox and, out of habit, checks his own. Three flyers and the January issue of Celebrity Skin go straight into the trash, and he catches the elevator up to the fourth floor. Number 42 has seen little sign of habitation since William's birth. He spent only a handful of nights there in the intervening months, a weekend when Scully had taken William out of town to visit an old med school friend and two nights very early on when Scully was hormonal and he was an asshole, and both of them had been bristling at the shock of how life had changed. They'd fought over his dirty laundry, which never seemed to make it to the basket, and the argument escalated until both they and William were screaming. A few very choice insults were exchanged, and he'd slunk back to Alexandria. Two of the most miserable nights of his life had followed before he returned to Georgetown with his tail between his legs to beg forgiveness. Since then, they've somehow managed to muddle along, taking breathers when emotions threaten to get the better of them, and trying to practice a tolerance that doesn't come naturally to either of them. He's also gotten a whole lot better with his aim. The air in the apartment is stale and vaguely unpleasant, the humid funk of an algae bloom lingering in the overheated air. After Christmas, he'll come back to sort through a third of a lifetime's worth of accumulated paraphernalia and get the goodwill in to clear out the furniture. But for now, he heads over to the fish tank and lifts the plastic lid off. Half a dozen mollies dart along the plants, startled by the intrusion. Wakey, wakey, boys. It's moving day. As 6 a.m. approaches, he has successfully relocated the tank and resilient mollies to the table in Scully's kitchen, formerly used as a writing desk. The coffee has just begun its steady drip when he hears the baby stirring. He changes William's diaper and carries him, a bottle of formula and a mug of coffee through to the bedroom. Scully is in much the same position he left her four hours ago, and he deposits the squirming baby onto the mattress beside her and sets down the coffee on the side table. William bats sticky hands at her face, and Scully blinks awake, unfocused eyes struggling to process the world around her. Mm, hello, honey, she murmurs, voice thick with sleep as she pulls William's chubby fist to her mouth and kisses his knuckles. What time is it? she asks, struggling up to one elbow and tucking the sheet around her sublime breasts. Mulder has never loved her more than he does in this moment. Rat's nest hair, smudged mascara, stubble rash on her neck, and her arm wrapped around the cotton-soft tummy of their son. Her smile is contented and utterly captivating. He hands her the mug of coffee and leans down to kiss her. Time to get up. Santa's been here. 
when half a cup of caffeine has been absorbed into her bloodstream, and not a moment before, she drags herself from bed and dons a pair of blue pajamas, the usual prim style she favors, but made from a soft brushed cotton that's much more forgiving than silk when mauled by baby hands. They help William open his gifts, kneeling on the floor beneath the pathetic tree. He's nonplussed by Fisher Price's best offerings, seemingly more entranced by the gift wrap which he keeps trying to eat as he rolls around on his playmat. That child has your oral fixation, Scully observes, rewarding him with a pleasant view of her ass as she crawls under the glabrous drooping branches to extract his gift. Didn't hear you complaining a few hours ago, he says as she returns to her knees and presents him with a neatly wrapped gift. He feels the package, shakes it, sniffs it. It's not a new basketball, he deduces drolly. A sexy little number from Fredericks of Hollywood? It's your present, Mulder, not mine. He picks at the tape along one edge of the package where the razor-sharp folds meet with perfect symmetry. Give a little get a little, Scully. She watches him carefully as he tears the gold paper off to reveal a rather worn copy of De Revolutionibus Orbium Coelestium. Realizing what's in his hands is fragile, his touch softens, and he gently thumbs through to the title page and sees the book is over a hundred years old. Scully, wow, he murmurs. This is incredible. She looks pleased. Do you like it? I do, thank you. He takes a hand from the book to squeeze her knee, his attention still focused on the remarkable book in his hands. He inhales the musty whiff of ancient paper, can feel the rough grain of aged paper rasping against the loops and whirls of his fingertips. Scully relishes his enjoyment for another moment and then shifts, and without looking up he can sense her casting around for her own gift, which is conspicuously absent. He lets her stew a moment longer, and then sets the book down on the coffee table, well out of William's destructive reach. Your present is in the kitchen, he says, and she frowns at him with confusion. In the kitchen? she repeats doubtfully. He can see the cogs whirring, the vague hint of alarm that he might have become the kind of guy who gives his lover kitchen appliances for Christmas. He smiles and nods, and she rises stiffly from the floor and moves into the kitchen. Mulder casts a quick glance to ensure the baby is safe and hurries after her. What's your fish tank doing here? she asks, confusion rising in her voice. I've given up my lease, he says, shuffling into position as an ember of fear glows in his belly. Jesus, please don't let him have gotten this wrong. She turns to face him, eyes widening when she sees him down on his knees on the floor, in the space between the sofa and the kitchen table. Mulder? she asks nervously. He drags his upper lip through his teeth as he reaches into the pocket of his sweats and extracts the small velvet box. Scully's breathing hitches. His own stopped several heartbeats ago. Cracking open the box, he holds it out to her with both hands, a narrow platinum band with a solitaire and a diamond-encrusted twisted shank. It's delicate and understated, and he can remember tracing the intricate double helix with his finger when his grandmother would read them a bedtime story in the years before it all went wrong. He remembers how rough the diamonds on the shank felt under his touch, and how much they sparkled in the dim light of his bedroom. What is this? Scully asks, an unprecedented degree of uncertainty lowering the register of her voice, 
and the ember in his gut glows brighter, self-doubt creeping in. Maybe he should have somehow concealed the ring on William's person for her to uncover herself. She would surely be unable to resist if the proposal came via their son. He takes a deep breath and forges ahead. It can mean whatever you want it to mean. If you want it to be a pretty ring, that's okay. Or, or if you want it to be more than that, if you want it to be a commitment, that's okay too. Because you're it for me, Scully, you and William. Her eyes are damp, her hands clenched in fists at her side, and he dares to hope this is a good sign. I'm all in, Scully, he whispers. A few tears spill from the cenotes of her eyes, and she brushes them away with the heel of her hand. So I get to decide, she asks eventually, approaching him slowly until her toes brush the pilled cotton covering his knees, and he has to tilt his head to look up at her. His hands fall to his sides, and he nods. He thinks about how this could have gone another way, how he could have romanced her with dancing and dinner dates, how he could have proposed on one knee with a new ring that didn't carry with it someone else's history. But somehow, after all they've been through together, this seems right. Her with her tousled hair, him in his ratty Knicks t-shirt, their baby chasing his toes on the floor a few feet away. Scully fumbles for his hands, and it takes him a moment to realize she's trying to prize the jewelry box from the claw of his grip. He lets her take it, and she brings the box up, squints at the ring. It's a pretty ring, she admits. Yeah. Slowly, she sinks down to her knees in front of him, so that she is the one looking up. And she does look up, her eyes filled with a love that she normally only shows openly for William. But this time, the full depth of what she feels for him is laid bare in her eddying blue eyes. Her love and respect for him is boundless, and for the first time, she lets him see it without a filter. Her mouth brushes against his, polar opposites finding one another, lips and noses and chins touching until she pulls back an inch and raises a hand to smooth the unruly hairs of his sideburn. I'm not changing my name, she whispers, the corners of her tipsy mouth turning upward. The embers in his belly burn bright, not with fear or hesitation, but with hope, and he is overcome, crushing her to him in a bear hug that almost lifts her off her knees. He buries his face in the fragrant crook of her neck and breathes her in until he can speak. Does this mean I get out of cooking Christmas dinner? He asks hoarsely, and she holds him back just as tight. Not a chance. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, you are granted early access to one new story per month. That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.